Last week on a killing on the Cape. The crew that was that had pulled up the driveway had just come out and they were somewhat distraught. And um, I asked them, you know, what what they had, and they told me they had a, uh, a deceased female. And um, so I went in and, and just looked, and um, Krista was uh, naked from the waist down, um, lying on her back. I put my hand on her left carotid artery. She had no pulse. I knew she was dead. I didn't know what had happened, but I thought that she had been murdered. Police in Cape Cod trying to solve their most high-profile case in decades. Krista Worthington, a fashion writer and single mother, stabbed to death in her own home. There are many different investigative methodologies, and we're going to employ every single one of them until this case is resolved. From ABC Radio in 2020, I'm Mark Remillard, and this is A Killing on the Cape. The investigation into Krista's murder would see a long list of potential suspects, a number of dead ends, and a community growing frustrated that the killer hadn't been caught. State police investigators took over the investigation on the night Krista's body was found, January 6, 2002. And immediately they believed this was not a random murder, but someone who knew Krista or knew how to find her. After all, it was winter time, so the tourists are gone from the Cape, and the population in places like Provincetown and Truro dropped to just a few thousand people. Krista was killed in her home, which is hidden down a long driveway. In the summer, with the trees and flowers in bloom, you can't even see the place from the street. Depot Road is also not a place that random people typically drive down. Krista's home is about a mile off Cape Cod's main highway. And remember, the town of Turl really doesn't have much to it. There are two post offices, a town hall, a grocery store, a few restaurants and small businesses. But there are no strip malls or food chains. People are much more likely to be passing through as they head in and out of the touristy province town. So taking that into consideration... I went to 50 Depot Road with Brad Garrett, a former FBI profiler and consultant to ABC News, and asked him what would investigators look for. What about this type of crime that occurred in an area like this? This is something unseen before almost. Right. Well, statistically, if you're in a place like this, the crime rate is exceedingly low because you have so few people. However, because of the isolation factor of how many people live here, including Krista and this long driveway up to a house. How did somebody know to come here? The question then is, who could fit that particular profile? And to figure that out, police had to look at everyone in Krista's life. And to know those in Krista's life, we have to know Krista. She was glamorous in a certain way, even though Everybody says Krista would hate that word, that she wasn't glamorous. But she had that glam factor being somebody who worked in New York and Paris and was part of the fashion industry. Maria Fluke, the author of Invisible Eden, which dives into Krista's career as a fashion writer before her death. Secret, sex, and money. That was all in this story. 
But the story I was interested in was the real story. Who was Krista Worthington? Krista Worthington had been a student of mine in a writing class at the Fine Arts Work Center in 1996. And uh, she was an independent, idiosyncratic, eccentric, professional person. Uh, her friends, Krista's friends, called her vivacious, sparkling. Uh, they said she had a world weariness, but it brought her great sophistication. She was a child. She grew up in Hingham, Mass., which is uh, south of Boston, uh, kind of Tony's so suburb. Her father was a Harvard-educated lawyer. Peter Manzo, author of Reasonable Doubt and a consultant on this story. Uh, Krista was the only child. She then went to Vassar. She went to the local high school, went to Vassar, um, where she was among the more interesting students. And back then, uh, this was just after Vassar became co-ed. Traditionally, Vassar was an all-women's school, and then it became a co-ed school. My name is Victoria Balfour. I was a Vassar classmate of Crystal Worthington. We were classmates from 1973 to 1977. Victoria says she was in an English thesis class with Krista, and while they weren't close friends, she got to know Krista since they were both English majors. Just Krista was someone you would know because she was so short and but interesting looking and pretty. You just knew who she was. She was one of those people. Krista would eventually become a fashion writer, but Victoria says you might not have guessed it if you knew Krista back when she was at Vassar. She wasn't into fashion at the time. She was into more hippie, peasant look, no makeup. She would wear peasant blouses and kind of long denim skirts to the ground and uh, bandanas, those blue paisley bandanas. So you know that you see motorcycle guys wear now, but that was big in the 70s. She was just more kind of waifish hippie. And I remember her, uh, my strongest memory of her just trudging across campus, this little person, but hugging books, probably way more than she did, but like they were her lost children. And that is one thing that is always consistent with every description of Krista I've ever heard. She loved books. But she was brilliant in class. I mean, she was one, I know she graduated with honors, but she was, Krista was, our thesis was British literature and Irish literature like James Joyce, Yeats, and it was very, you know, esoteric, if you ask me. And our, our professor was kind of an Anglophile, but she, and I think um, Krista was too, but she was, could come out with things that were, like, where did she get that? She was very bright in kind of an academic way, uh, very thoughtful and insightful. And we would all look at her like, wow. And I'm not just saying that because she really was very smart. One After college, Krista moved to Manhattan, where she began her writing career. The world of fashion writing in a city like New York seemed a natural fit for Krista, according to Peter Manzo. And Krista always, was a, always as best I know, was attracted, drawn to not the high life, but the bohemian, the intellectual, um, which she found in Manhattan, obviously. Um, she worked for the New York Times. She worked for Elle magazine. She worked for uh, W, Women's Wear Daily. As a matter of fact, she spent a year and a half, closer to two years maybe, in Paris. And during this period, the then editor of 
Women's Wear Daily in Paris, uh, either died or quit. And she ran Women's Wear Daily. She became the temporary editor of the magazine in Paris. Krista would leave and, Paris and return to New York, continuing a life mixed in with the glitz and glamour that came with high fashion. Even in the 1990s, which saw the rise of heroin chic, subculture influence, and a turn away from the flashy 1980s. What's the look that everybody's looking for this year? Um, novelty. I knew this. This business has become more glamorous than ever. It's the prestige, and in New York, the Americans, they, they, they like that. They're impressed by the Italian designers, also the French designers, anything international. The fashion story this year is more above the waist, around the necklines, or the open necklines. They like a variety of options, and this, this season is giving them up. My name's Eli Gottlieb. I'm a writer and novelist, and I met Krista when we were editors together at Elle magazine in probably 1990. The French were still running the magazine, and because the French were running the magazine, it was kind of an ongoing party disguised as a publication, and uh, there was a lot of extracurricular fun. Krista seemed to know a tremendous amount of celebrities. It wasn't anything that she... Uh, was too ostentatious about, but it was uh, it was clear that she was really wired in, uh, whether it was... And she always used to have the latest gossip. But while New York fashion writing in the 1990s meant a fast-paced life, Eli says Krista never took her writing for granted. She sweated over her writing. She did not take it lightly. She took it extremely seriously, and she turned out very elegant prose wasn't always on, you know, weighty subjects. It wasn't about world peace or global disarmament. It was usually about, you know, the, the latest desert boot or uh, 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 culotte uh, trend, but it was, uh, it was well done. She was a good writer. Krista published three books with Chic Simple. Author Maria Fluke. One of them was this little book called Scarves, and I'd love to read you a couple little passages from this book, which I totally enjoy. The headscarf. The headscarf reveals as it conceals. Since the 15th century, when the Catholic Church decreed that the Virgin Mary conceived through her ear, wrapping the head has been a show of feminine chastity with built-in provocations. The louder the go-away message, the more audible the come-hither. Isn't that great? Krista's friend Eli says as time went on, though, Krista's writing appeared to be less fulfilling for her. After she left Elle magazine, she experimented for a while. She was the uh, antiques or collectibles columnist for the New York Times. And I think you know, she'd been doing this for 20-odd years, and she was beginning to, um, uh, beginning to lose a little bit of interest and beginning to look for deeper fulfillment in life. For all her brilliance and success, Eli says Krista's personal life was filled with one tumultuous relationship after another. Krista's love life was um, a mess. There's no other way to describe it. She was perennially in search of a guy and uh, perennially unable to happily settle down with anybody. She would 
have relationships, but they usually would be of short duration. And um, as time went on, they seemed to get uh, shorter and shorter and more and more erratic. The people that she was with became stranger and weirder. And every time the phone would ring, she'd have some new story to tell. And it just went from weird to weirder. Eli says Krista began to want a child, even writing some articles and appearing on some television shows to talk about it. This is from her appearance on The Lisa Show. Trying to figure out how to be the best parent to your child, given that there is no father. Krista, at one point, uh, decided to go public with her quest to have a child. And she wrote an article in Harper's Bazaar, I think it was, called something like, Do I Dare? And, and it was, Am I Selfish? to uh, try to have a, a child uh, in vitro at age 40. Uh, and uh, the answer that came back from the audience of the television show she did, as I recall, was, yes, you are. She was booed and hissed. And she didn't really seem to mind. She thought it was all quite funny. I think she was a bit shocked at the time. But um, I think in the end, she found it hilarious, their reaction. With fruitless relationships and her biological clock winding down, so to speak, Eli says Krista began looking for a change. So in the summer of 1997, she left New York and moved to Cape Cod, where she had spent summers as a child and where her family has a number of properties. The first place she moved into was a small, almost shack-like home that was owned by her grandmother. It was right on Pamet Harbor, just down the road from the house at 50 Depot Road, where she would eventually move. In the, in the Cape, Krista seemed to access uh, the truer version of herself, which really was more let your hair down, uh, uh, walk around in flip-flops and shorts, throw the uh, Hermes and the Givenchy to the back of the closet, and uh, just relax. She was a more, um, you know, soulful, to use a freighted word, but she was. She let herself... Uh, unwind. Hammett Harbor is picturesque Cape Cod. The inlet is surrounded by beautiful sand dunes, and Hammett Marsh is where people go swimming, kayaking, or paddleboard. And in the evening, the sun sets out over Cape Cod Bay with vibrant oranges, yellows, deep purple colors. It's a very relaxing place, but it can get busy at times. Krista's shack was right next to the parking lot for the harbor, where everyday pickup trucks arrive with trailers carrying fishing boats that pass out of the harbor and into the bay. And according to Maria Fluke, Krista would get upset that people would leave their boats in front of her house, but her complaints about it led to one of the most important relationships in her life. She used to like to go and talk to the harbor master. She often had complaints about people leaving their, their boats right in front of her door and all kinds of problems. And that was the first time she noticed Tony Jacket. And Tony Jacket came in and talked to Warren, and he met Krista. She noticed him because he was very handsome. He's got black curly hair and a beautiful golden complexion. And he's, he's very, very appealing when you first meet him because he's wide open and he's friendly. And he noticed her, too. And within several weeks' time, they took a liking to one another. Tony Jacket was the shellfish constable of Provincetown and Truro. It was his job to enforce fishing laws and make sure people had the proper licenses when they fish. Well, apparently not long after they met, Tony had just gotten a pair of rollerblades. And in the most 90s way of strutting your stuff I've ever heard, 
He skated around in the parking lot in front of Krista, which caught her attention. She found him in the parking lot, rollerblading back and forth in front of her. And this is a 50-year-old guy on rollerblades, rollerblading in front of Krista. And uh, before you know it, uh, they were, she, he was going over to her house for tea. And then, of course, it um, became a little deeper. One small problem? Tony was married, and he and his wife, Susan, have six kids together. Right now we're pulling up to the house of Tony Jacket. Today, 67-year-old Tony Jacket lives in Wellfleet. That's on the Cape, just south of Truro. And like a lot of Cape Cod homes, it's hard to spot from the street, but it's definitely not as hidden as Krista's. Tony still lives with his wife, Susan. So that's the story behind that. Can you describe it for me? What are we looking at? Well, this is my board. I had it more than 20 years, uh, Josephine G., and, uh, On the wall near the kitchen of his home is a black and white picture of Tony in his boat. He must have been in his late 30s at the time. You can see that he's weathered tan with curly hair. His bleach white teeth stand out as he smiles back towards the camera. The way Tony explains the affair is very one thing led to another. What was the, uh, when I first met her was uh, the summer of ni- 1997. And then as I got to know her a little bit, I think there was a time that she asked me to uh, help her do something up at her house, and I think it was the move of like a dory that she had. Mm-hmm. And that was when I uh, got to be more friendly with her. It seemed to me that I went over to her house and was having a cup of tea. And then the next thing you know, we were in bed. It was probably easier to go back the second time. But, you know, I didn't really see her a whole lot. It wasn't really just a small town. Uh, you're nervous, or at least aware that, you know, you could be seen. Nevertheless, the affair went on. I felt at that time, at that point in time in my life, I don't want to say it was a midlife crisis. It was, I was more like curious about uh, an opportunity to, to explore and do different things. And I wasn't, had no plan on leaving home. Uh, I wasn't, certainly wasn't going to leave one family to go start another. Tony insists that Krista told him she couldn't have a baby. Krista was, after all, in her early 40s and had been told by doctors she couldn't have children. But against the odds, and to Tony's shock, Krista got pregnant. She tells me that uh, I think you should sit down. I have something to tell you, and I'm pregnant. So I'm thinking... How could I be so dumb? And um, I remember that it was like, well, okay, so what do you want? You know, I'm not going to leave my family to go start another family. No, no, you don't. I don't want you to say anything because I'm going to. My mother's not well. I plan on going home uh, to help take care of my mother. And at, um, this is very early on, and I might lose the child so that we kind of left at that and I didn't know if that was something I could keep from my wife for, not for very long and uh, 
But I did manage to do that for a couple of years. I was I was uh, shocked because she had me convinced that that um, she couldn't have children. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. After Krista became pregnant, the affair ended, but the secret continued. Around this time, Krista had moved out of the house on Pamet Harbor and into the home on 50 Depot Road. Ava was born in May of 1999, but it wouldn't be for nearly two more years until Tony would confess to his wife. At some point before April 2001, about eight months before Krista's death, tensions between her and Tony began to rise. She had begun asking Tony to put Ava on his life and medical insurance, as well as to provide child support for her. Tony later told police that Krista had been, quote, nagging him for financial support of Ava. Krista had even gotten a lawyer involved who was threatening to garnish his wages to provide support for Ava and was asking Tony to sign a formal agreement. Tony says the agreement was set up in a way that he'd still be able to keep it all a secret from his wife, but notes that he felt pressured to agree to it or that Krista might expose their affair. And there is at least some evidence that Krista may have been thinking of exposing their tryst. At one point, Krista wrote a five-page handwritten letter to Tony's wife, Susan Jacket in which she wrote that she'd been having sex with Tony for some time. The letter is dripping with a sardonic tone. She talks about being in bed with Tony from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., or maybe it's a 9, it's hard to tell. But either way, she wrote about spending all day in bed with him. She wrote about how when Tony says he was going to check on his boat, he was actually with her. She even wrote a few graphic lines about his anatomy just before capping it off with the words, Happy Anniversary. The letter was apparently never sent, but shows that Krista, for whatever reason, may have been looking to ruin things for Tony. The letter isn't penitent. It's rather malicious. Um, this is part of the files for my book. In the basement of consultant and author Peter Manzo's home on Cape Cod are the dozens of boxes filled with research for his book, Reasonable Doubt. This is Krista's handwriting. And In one of those boxes, a copy of Krista's diary, a window into her thoughts. As you'll note, it's a very good handwriting. I mean, she, she has a good script. It begins, comedy is the hardest thing in the world. Krista wrote in her diary about her relationship with Tony Jacket, and it shows how swept up in the affair she had become. Writing, quote, if there was a sweeter person on earth between the hours of 8 and 9.15, I would not believe it. Tony became tender and we were made new spellbound. I love him. 
She even has this line about how ordering pizza in public was a thrill. Quote, that is adultery, when ordering pizza becomes a thing of beauty. But it also shows that she had become frustrated with Tony, and then at times outright angry with him. Tony was here and could feel the quality of my complaints. Nothing was possible. All was bleak. I forced myself to stop. She also writes about her pregnancy and being alone. For me, there was no choice. Not that I'm so unhappy about it, but that the difficulties are not what I would have chosen. A child without a father, me without a mate. And she goes on. At another point, she writes that she'd come to resent Tony, apparently telling him how depressed and how unnatural it was to be pregnant and alone, to which she writes Tony said he hadn't completely abandoned her, she replies, quote, don't do me any favors. Then she reaches a point when she seems to have had enough, writing, quote, I'm here alone and he's living his married life. That's it. I'm out. If he can't do better than that. Despite her frustration, though, Krista wouldn't be the one to expose the affair, which Peter Manzo says was actually no secret to practically anybody in Truro, save for Tony's wife, Susan. Child was born, what, in 2000? Late 99? So she had not, she did not know up to that point. But everyone else in town knew. This was the incredible thing. In Trooper Christopher Mason's report, Susan even tells him that she was apparently the last person to find out that Tony had been sleeping with Krista. She'd only find out about it after Tony says he couldn't live with the secret anymore, nor could he live with what he told Trooper Mason was the power that Krista had over him. And that's when he decided to come clean. When I told her the news, and it was like, um... You feel like you, you, you could almost do anything else, you know, be on a boat that just sunk in a big storm and, and hope you could swim the shore, then tell her that. Um, but she was in a state of shock. And then she felt like, I, I got to get out of here. And she actually drove into town in tears and told her dad while she's banging on the door. And he's coming to the door, and it's because it, I don't think it was that late, but he was went to bed early, and and she, I got this awful news, and um, he's she's well, well, what is it? And she told him, it's Tony. He had an affair, and he had a baby, and he's like, Christ, is that all? So I think that kind of, you know, uh, calmed it down a little bit. So I think as she thought of, she said, okay, I, I think I, what I want you to do is y'all going to go down the hall and you're going to stay in that bedroom until I figure out what I'm going to do with you. And I remember saying, okay, all right. So I got that out of the way. So I, I never left. I wasn't kicked out of the house. And then we started to um, talk a little bit about how something like that can happen. And then... We both agreed to see the therapist. In Trooper Mason's report, Tony told him that after about a month, things started to improve between him and Susan. He says Krista had given him plenty of time to get his family together, and that after adding Ava to his health insurance, Krista had stopped pursuing things with a lawyer. He also says, with everything out in the open, Krista seemed less concerned about how and what she would eventually tell Ava about who her father is. And making the situation even better was that Tony's wife, Susan, had decided that Ava should be part of the family, which culminated in Susan embracing Ava and, by extension, Krista, and all of them regularly having dinner together, an unorthodox situation, according to Peter Manzo. Krista agreed to go to the Jackets for dinner, Sundays. Uh, at this point, Susan embraced Ava, 
Ava's one of my children, too. You know, Mother Earth comes to the fore. While I was at the Jacket household, there was a picture of Ava on the fireplace mantle, prominently displayed right next to a family portrait of their other children. There were other pictures of Ava around the house as well. Susan says it really wasn't that hard to accept Krista and Ava. It wasn't difficult. I, uh, once I got to know Krista, I, I liked her, enjoyed her company, and uh, I just felt sorry for her dilemma, for Ava's dilemma, my dilemma, my children's, and I said, you know, if Tony and I are going to stay together, we have to make this work. The Jackets and Krista continued to be involved in each other's life right up until Krista's death. The Jackets say they were getting along with Krista, but the whole situation, as odd as it is from the outside, quickly made them targets for suspicion. On January 6, 2002, after Tim Arnold had found Krista's body, Tony and Susan were called to come over to Krista's uncle's house, where the rest of the Worthingtons had gathered. I didn't know that that she was dead when they called Tony to go, go and pick Ava up. He said, come on, we're going to go pick up Ava. And uh, something's happened to Krista. That's how he worded it. So we got in the car to go pick up Ava at uh, Cindy Worthington's. And I said, is Krista in the hospital? Did she fall? Is she okay? How long will we have Ava? He said, Susan, she's dead. I could, just couldn't believe it. I was in shock. Well, I couldn't believe it either. That's why I, I, I was in shock. Say it, but a couple of weeks he couldn't earlier, even bring himself to say it. A couple of weeks earlier, here we are at a mutual friend's house. At a solstice. And I went to solstice party, which has been, say, December 21st, and say it's the, that weekend of the January 6th is when we got the news. But I'm thinking, I can't believe that, that we, uh, that I was still married and that, that uh, Krista and Susan we were sitting were, were together. Sitting together. And I, remember, I, was, I was shucking oysters, little thinking that two weeks later, my feeling so lucky turned upside down because now I don't think I was aware of me being a suspect initially. At Krista's uncle's house, Tony would be interviewed by trooper Christopher Mason and asked about where he'd been that day. Mason wrote that Tony told him he was at Pamet Harbor in the morning, that he'd driven past Krista's on his way out and went to Provincetown where his son had been shell fishing with a friend. He later went to his father-in-law's and watched some of the Patriots game, left to go home to eat dinner, and then he received a call from Krista's friend, Francie Randolph, telling him that Krista was dead. Mason also asked Tony about where he was Friday and Saturday as well. Since Krista's body was already stiff when paramedics arrived, investigators believed she'd been dead for some time. Mason's report noted that on Friday, Tony told him he and Susan had gone to see the Royal Tenenbaums at Cape Cod Mall Cinema in Hyannis, And then on Saturday, they had gone to see A Beautiful Mind at Wellfleet Cinemas, just south of Truro. Trooper Mason later checked with the theaters and wrote that there were, in fact, showtimes for when Tony said he and Susan were at the movies. I can't believe they would suspect you, and so we were questioned quite a few times. In our we I remember there was two movies. This is when we'd go to the movies together. I'm the one that goes to the movies, and she doesn't do that anymore. But we we went and we saw um, The Tenenbaums. I love that Gene Hackman. And... uh, the other one was with Russell Crowe and uh, Beautiful Mind. Yes. So that, that weekend, you know, and then we had people that we knew, that we saw in the movie theater, that 
they, you know, we saw could account for our time. So, that, but even though they didn't or was reluctant to rule me out, they would say, we can't rule them in, we can't rule them out. And it kind of stayed like that. And it was going to stay like that until they made an arrest. It would be three years before that would happen, though. So during that time, Tony and Susan Jacket say they endured sideways looks from some in the community who thought they might have been involved. One of those who became suspicious of them almost immediately was the EMT, George Malloy, who took Krista's daughter, Ava, away from the scene. Malloy says while they were all at Krista's uncle's house on the night they found Krista's body, Susan made what Malloy called offensive comments about Ava. And Jacket's wife said to me, um, don't, li- you know, don't listen to anything this little girl has to say. She's a liar. And I'm thinking to myself, what the And I, I just found that to be extremely offensive when you're talking about a two-year-old, calling a two-year-old a liar. Because at this point, you've got a dead woman who he's had an affair with, okay? All right? You've got his wife in front of me telling her that the two-year-old is a liar. I suspected him as a suspect, the first suspect, and then her as the second. This, of course, doesn't mean Tony or Susan had anything to do with Krista's death, and they have both always denied any involvement. But as George Malloy says, the situation between the Jackets and Krista, coupled with Susan's alleged comments, made him question whether they were involved. While we were at Tony and Susan's house, I asked Susan about what George told us. We just wanted to hear it from you guys. Allegedly, George Malloy had said or heard you say, Susan, that you don't listen to Ava. She's a bleeping liar. Uh... We just want to hear your response to that. Okay. George was sitting on the floor. Um, I felt like I couldn't even get near her, and I was afraid she would reject me being how she was, with she's with who she's with. So I just stood there, and I was kind of chatty, and I said, um, I, you know, I came to pick up Ava, and would you like to have a bath, Ava? And... Um, I said once in a while she'll, she'd tell me that she didn't like to take baths, and her mother said she actually loves baths, but sometimes she tells fibs. And when I was just trying to kind of make light conversation, and that somehow or other, I don't know how that got uh, twisted around that I said she was a liar not to listen to what she said. I was just trying to make conversation how she's little and she really loves baths but she'll say she doesn't like them and her mother said she tells fibs sometimes and I don't know how they got misconstrued but that was so untrue that I said that child was a liar. She was a baby. She didn't even know to tell lies. It's not clear if any of this ever weighed on Trooper Mason or Sergeant William Burke. It's not clear if they ever even heard about Susan's alleged comments. But after interviewing nearly every member of the Jacket family, as well as dozens of other people close to them and Krista, police knew about the friction between Tony and Krista before he told his wife about the affair. And then there is that letter, the one that Krista wrote that would have exposed the affair and was apparently never sent. As Peter Manso says, it was written with intention. I mean, this was a letter written by one woman to another meant to hurt, to injure. And the cops took this letter and they said, hey, maybe this is why Susan killed Krista. Not because she got the letter, but because this letter encapsulated some of the elements, the emotional elements of what what was going on here. Police looked at Tony and questioned both him and Susan several times in the months after the murder, even asking both of them to take polygraphs, during which they were asked questions such as, did you stab Krista? 
do you know who stabbed Krista? And in both tests, the state troopers who administered them wrote, in his opinion, there was no deception found. So without anything concrete to tie Tony or Susan to the murder, just some apparent hurt feelings and alleged odd reactions, as well as others backing up that the relationship between the Jackets and Krista had been good at the time of her death, Trooper Mason and Burke's focus on them seems to have eased in the months following the murder. Each subsequent interview with Susan and Tony got shorter. For example, in his first interview with Tony, Trooper Mason's report was seven pages. By the second, three pages. And by the last one, May 2nd, 2002, a little less than four months after Krista's murder, the interview summary, just two pages. Police suspicion around the jackets, though, particularly Tony, they say would still come to affect them directly. After Krista's death, they fought to get custody of Ava, but they believe the cloud of suspicion hurt their chances. And like nearly everything that occurred in this case over the next several years, the custody battle included, it would play out in the public eye. It ended with a handshake between Krista Worthington's ex-lover and her good friend, the two now fighting for custody of the child he fathered. It was Because I kind of felt like I was being thrown to the wolves a little bit. You know, this is, you know, with all the media there and, you know, such a scandal, uh, just having the affair and the baby, and now it's it's like uh, all over the news. So that was a big turnout. All of a sudden you got uh, media from everywhere and at the uh, courthouse. And I thought, oh my God, this is not something that... Uh, you think it's going to happen <laughs> when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do the rest of your life. So um, the DA was there. He get, he had gotten up to speak and said, look, we can't rule Mr. Jacket in or out as far as being someone that could have committed this crime. So I think the judge felt the safe thing to do was to award temporary custody and a lot of times, the one that gets temporary custody most often ends up with permanent custody. It was Krista's good friend, Amira Chase, who would be awarded custody of Ava, and Ava would go to live with her near Boston. Krista had apparently named Amira as the person she wanted Ava to live with, if in case something did happen to her. So with police unwilling to officially rule anyone out, Tony and Susan say they face public pressure for the three years it took investigators to make an arrest and charge someone else with Krista's murder. I was never ever called or told that I was not a uh, suspect. But I did get a letter from the DA, and I think it was phrased as diminished. The letter that I got from Mr. O'Keefe would have been phrased in a way that my being a person of interest had been significantly diminished with whatever evidence that they had before them. Next time, police expand their radius, looking at others in Krista's social circle, even her own father. So it was shocking when people learned after Krista's murder that he was involved with a heroin addict, rent girl, but Krista knew about this 
prior to her murder and was quite worried. And with the dead ends mounting and the public watching, authorities would soon expand their search for the killer to the whole town of Truro. It drew national attention because police tried to find the killer by asking every man in a small town to submit DNA. I'd like to see the you know the murderer be found, but you know to, to in, invade everybody's privacy in the town is just a bit ridiculous. You know what I mean? And I, and I feel as an American citizen, it's just wrong. So I think he felt the pressure to solve this, also because it was such a nationally publicized case. This is not just a little Cape Cod murder. It suddenly involved New York, Los Angeles. The whole country was watching. The reason this case is so complicated is there were so many different possible suspects. From an investigative standpoint, this case almost becomes like a game of Clue. That's next week. A Killing on the Cape is a production of ABC Radio, 2020, and ABC News Digital. David Sloan is 2020's senior executive producer, and Terry Lickstein is our executive producer for this series. Karen Schiffman is our senior editorial producer. Episodes produced by myself, Mark Remillard, with reporting and production by Karen Schiffman, Kerry Cook, Gail Deutsch, Mark Dorian, Jeff Schneider, myself, and Jonathan Balthaser. Our website is produced by Lauren Efron. That's at abcnews.com slash a killing on the cape. There we've got documents and other pieces from the case you can check out. 